Over the last several weeks, we've been discussing this universal feeling of homesickness in the heart of humanity, this sense that we really don't belong in this world. And early on in December, we saw that how this longing for home surfaced in every language and people and ethnic group in the world. We, we, we looked at how it surfaced in different cultures, in their music, and their philosophy, their arts, their literature. And almost every language has a word or a phrase of words to describe this homesickness, this longing, this yearning in the human heart. The German thinker Heidegger coined a German term, Unheimlichkeit, which literally translates, it means unhome-like. Heidegger meant it in reference to this world. It was Unheimlichkeit. It was this feeling that we're living in a place that isn't really home, that we are all, as a race, in some ways, we are exiles. We are living in a world that cannot support the deepest needs of the human heart. From the communist Karl Marx to the Christian writer and thinker C.S. Lewis, every people of every time from every culture and every language and various religious groups have referred in their own ways to this unheimlichkeit feeling, uh, this sense of isolation and alienation that this world cannot be all there is. C.S. Lewis wrote, Though being hungry does not prove I will get food, Surely being hungry proves there's such a thing as food. You say that the material universe is ugly, unjust, you don't like it. But if you're just the product of a material universe, if that's all you are, why don't you feel at home in it? Do fish complain about the sea for being wet? We feel wet when we get into water because we are not aquatic creatures. Then why don't you feel at home here? The only possible explanation is home is somewhere else. The first week of December, we tackled the question, why do we long for home? And last week, we tackled the question, how do we get home? And today, I want to answer the question, what will it be like when we find our true home? And next week on Christmas Sunday, I want to answer the question, what does all this have to do with the story of Christmas, Jesus, and all of this thing about Christmas? That'll be Christmas Sunday. Our text, our Bible text for the whole series in the month of December is is a very common Advent passage from Jeremiah chapter number 31, an Old Testament passage, and I want us to look back there today. I want to read from verses 31 to 34 in just a moment, but just to remind you, we answered that first question, why do we long for home, by looking at verse 10 through 14, and then we answered last week, how do we get home, by looking at verses 15 through 17. And, and for those of you that are joining us today, it's kind of like we're in the third part of a movie that's been to be continued every week, and, and I hope that there's enough meat here for you to understand if you're coming in that this sermon stands alone, but there are obviously some references to some things we've already covered. Like last week, the passage in Jeremiah 31 verse 15 talks about we get home by the tears of Rachel, and we explain the significance of the tears of Rachel. She gave birth in Genesis 38. She died in labor. And then in Jeremiah 31, her tears are mentioned again when Babylon comes and ransacks Jerusalem and takes the Jews as slaves, and the mothers, Hebrew mothers are weeping over their dead sons and their captive children. And again, Rachel, nationally, Rachel weeps 
And then in Matthew 2, when Herod kills all of the Hebrew babies under the age of two trying to stamp out Jesus, the Messiah, again, it is said that Rachel, in a symbolic national way, weeps for her children. And we talked about the significance of Rachel's weeping. And through Rachel's tears, we are going to inevitably get home. And then today, I want us to look at verse 31, because it describes a little bit about what it's going to be like when we find our true home, when we inevitably get there. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will not, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. Declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. Now look at verse 38. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city, talking about Jerusalem, will be rebuilt for me from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will stretch from there straight to the hill of Garib and then to turn to Goa. The whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown and all the terraces out of the Kidron Valley on the east as far as the corner of the horse gate. Notice this, it will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. There are two ways for me to talk about what our true home will be like when we finally get there. And one of them is in the term of reality. And the other is in the term of relationship. Relationship and reality. And let me talk about reality first. You remember all the prophecies that we've looked at in the Old Testament through the last few weeks that described Israel's homecoming back out of Babylonian captivity. They were literal slaves. Seventy years after Jerusalem was ransacked, they actually did come home. But all the prophecies about their homecoming were so over the top that the actual historical event never lived up to all of the prophecies. The same is true of this passage I'm reading to you from Jeremiah. It is so extravagant, so over the top of what it's going to be like. The same is true of verse 38 through verse 40. When the city of Jerusalem is supposedly supposed to be rebuilt, three things anchor that promise. Number one, the city will be rebuilt and he details the measurements. From this gate to that gate, there'll be a straight line. The expanse of the city is outlined with specific measurements. Number two, the city will be sanctified or made holy to the Lord. Number three, the city will never again be uprooted or demolished. It will be an invincible and an eternal city. And if you look historically, no feature of any of those three prophecies has ever been fulfilled in any level. After Jeremiah's time, Jerusalem was rebuilt under the leadership of Nehemiah. And then it was expanded, especially around the temple area, under the leadership of Herod the Great. But never, historically and even up to the present day, has it expanded to the measurements that Jeremiah lays out. The second part of the prophecy is that the city would become sanctified and the people would be holy to the Lord. There's not a city in our world where all the people are sanctified and made holy to the Lord. And there's probably more strife around and about Jerusalem than any city in the entire world. And in strong language, Jeremiah closes the section and addresses the third promise by saying, Jerusalem, after God rebuilds it, will be invincible forever. It will be eternal. It will never again 
then be destroyed. And it's pretty obvious by looking at these verses that while the return of the Jews back to Israel was important and while the rebuilding of Jerusalem historically was important, the prophets have to be speaking of some time beyond this. There has to be some reference to a future homecoming that was grander than the reality. There has to be some prophecy about a future rebuilding of a future Jerusalem that has to be grander than any historical rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. Here's the reality. You were made for another world. You weren't made for this world. You were made for Eden. We were exiled from Eden because of our sin. When God created us, God not only promised to restore our relationship with Him that we lost in the original sin, but He promised to restore that place we call home, that place that we were created for, Eden. The Bible begins with paradise lost. And if you read all the way to the end, it ends with paradise restored. And if you listen to the ending, God is restoring what He promised He would restore. John the Revelator is writing the last book of the Bible, and he writes about the fulfillment of Jeremiah's future Jerusalem, and he describes the invincible and eternal Jerusalem that Jeremiah looked to. Revelation 21, 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This world is not your home. But the Bible says, one day it will be. At the end of time, at the end of the story of God, this biblical picture is the city of God, our true home, the Father's house coming down from God out of heaven to earth. Notice, we are not going up to it. It is coming down to us. God is descending in power and make the whole world a garden of Eden. That's what Ezekiel says. That's what the Bible says. And I want you to understand that's the whole message of Advent. Advent simply means coming or breaking in. And when we speak of Advent, most people think about Christmas. God came as a baby in a manger. And when, but when He came the first time, He came as a... and It was born into a peasant family. A, an, an animal's feed trough was His crib. He grew in that Advent to become a suffering Savior. His legacy was a bloody cross. His tenure in the first Advent was marked by humility and suffering and meekness. But if Advent teaches us anything, it teaches us that the God who broke into humanity once can break into humanity again. But when He comes again, the second Advent or the second coming, there will be no sweet infant mild, no beautiful young mother or angelic choirs or star-filled winter nights. In the second Advent, Bethlehem's babe is coming as a conquering king. His second Advent will be marked with authority and with 
power. In Revelation 19, John the Revelator describes the disposition of his authority when he comes in his second advent. It says in Revelation 19.11, I saw the heaven open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His wrath and fury is directed at sin and Satan and evil evil and injustice. This is not a meek and mild advent that we see in the first in uh, the first advent. What I want you to know and let me announce it and clearly state it today, the king is coming to earth again. That's what advent says. If there is a first coming, there is a second coming. And if that is true and he's coming back in that disposition, it would do well for you to get off the program committee and the pl- complaint committee and the criticism committee and get on the welcome committee because the king is coming to earth again. Advent reminds us to expect and anticipate to look to the future with hope. Just a few years ago, I, 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 I was in awe as the entire world stopped to watch an unknown woman marry a British prince in the royal wedding. One million people filled the streets of London just to catch a glimpse. They say two billion people from around the world huddled around televisions just to try to see the royal wedding. Why? As I watched that and I stood in awe asking myself that question, the Holy Spirit whispered to me that our quickness to clamor to a British monarch is evidence of our spiritual craving for our only true king. Humanity is longing for its king. Because the return of the king is the only way we will ever truly be home. The old song says, I'm looking for a city where we'll never die. There the sainted millions will never say goodbye. There we'll meet our Savior and our loved ones too. Come, O Holy Spirit, all our hopes renew. The people of God, since the Garden of Eden and the crumbling because of sin there, have been looking for that city. Moses was looking for that city. The writer of Hebrews said Abraham was looking for that city. Hebrews 11.10 By faith Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So what makes that city home? It's not its address. It's not its location. What made Eden home was the presence of God. And what makes heaven home is the presence of God. In Revelation 21, John the Revelator describes how the presence of God will so fill that city, the future Jerusalem, the future city, that there will be no need for a temple or a sun or a moon. He said, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the 
the sun or the moon to shine. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The presence of God is so unadulterated, so unfiltered that His glory lights the entire city. There is no need to build a church or a temple because the temple cannot house the glory of God that is present in that city. When we get there, we will finally be home because the presence of God is home. Listen to the psalmist refer to the fulfillment our hearts are longing for. Psalm 17, 15. He said, ask for me, I will be vindicated when I see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. He's saying when we actually see God face to face, it'll be like we're back in Eden. You were built For the glory of God. You are built to see His face. Your intellectual and emotional and aesthetic and psychological and spiritual capacities will never completely be fulfilled here because you were created for an Eden that no longer exists. But when you get there, you will finally be home. You have to understand... We live in between the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. If you think about it, John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. And yet Jesus, when He taught us to pray, He said, Pray, the kingdom will come, that God's will will be done on earth as in heaven. One says, The kingdom has come. Jesus said, Pray, the kingdom will come. And the only way to understand that is to realize there is a measure of the kingdom of God that has come, the now. But there is obviously a measure of the kingdom of God, the full revelation of the kingdom of God, that has not yet come. We live in the tension between the now and the not yet. We live in the between time, between paradise lost and paradise restored. And if you've been with us the last couple weeks, you'll understand when I say that. In the between time, we are breathing Martian air. Air that we are not created to breathe. That's why our bodies get sick and our marriages break down and why we're living in a world that doesn't feel like home. And I talk with people sometimes, folks, that don't believe in a real heaven. And if you're one of them, I hope you get over it. So many people sit on their Mount Olympus in the stratospheric heights of lofty condescension and look down upon us poor fools who actually believe that city is a reality. And some people ask, well, how is New Jerusalem going to come down? I mean, how could a whole city descend from heaven? I'm not really sure what kind of elevator God's got, but the same God that brought Jesus up can bring Jerusalem down. He'll do it when He's good and ready. He's good enough now. He's just not ready. But when He gets ready, friend, the King is coming back to earth again. You might not think very often about your true home In the presence of God. But when life gets tough and the news headlines get scary, I catch myself singing the old songs of my childhood that remind me heaven is not a fairy tale, my true home is a reality. This is not some fictitious story, fictitious story. It isn't an Alfred King or an Alfred Hitchcock book or a Stephen King novel or a Spielberg movie. Jesus said, I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if it were not true, I would not have told you. Advent is a reminder to keep hoping, to keep looking, to keep expecting, to keep believing. One of those old songs that keeps coming to my heart when I feel the heaviness of this world and the Martian air 
care of this world is causing me to break down is the old Gaither song that says the marketplace is empty no more traffic in the street all the builders tools are silent no more time to harvest wheat busy housewives cease their labor in the courtroom no debate work on earth has been suspended as the king comes through the gate happy faces line the hallway those whose lives have been redeemed broken homes he has mended those from prison he has freed little children and the aged hand in hand stand all aglow who were crippled broken ruined clad in garments white as snow I can hear the chariots rumble I can see the marching throng and the fury of God's trumpet spells the end of sin and wrong regal roles are now unfolded heaven's grandstands all in place heaven's choir is now assembled they start to sing amazing grace and the chorus says the king is coming the king is coming I just heard the trumpet sounding and soon I'll see his face the king is coming the king is coming praise God he's coming for me this life Not the one we were intended to be living. This Martian air we breathe is full of barrenness and miscarriages and terminal illness and funerals and heartache. And it leaves us asking the tough questions and losing the will to fight on. But Paul said, the believer in Christ, the dead will be raised. The living will put on immortality. And he said, as believers in Christ, comfort one another with these words. He's saying to us, the scriptures are telling us, Advent is reminding us, your heartache is not the end of the story. Don't close the book. Don't put a period at the end of a sentence that tells the sad story that's going on in your life right now. I know things are tough and there's all this doomsday talk but I'm not looking for a hole in the ground I'm not building a bunker in the backwoods because I know how the story ends I have the promise the king is coming do you hear me this morning the king is on his way if he can break in once as a baby in a manger Bethlehem's babe can return one more time to this earth and establish his kingdom I don't know when he will but I'm telling you to hang on in between breathe the presence of God as your breath in the in between time and hold Hold on because the king is coming again. We said last week that Rachel's tears are the tears of every person who has every, ever wept over the spiritual inhospitality of this world to your heart's deepest desires. You grieved over death. You grieved over cancer. You grieved over unanswered questions and financial ruin and all the stuff that goes with living this life. Rachel's tears are synonymous with a mother who died in birth so that her son could live. And then the mothers of Hebrew children who have wept over the persecution of their own forever. And yet the New Testament somehow says that Jesus was the ultimate Rachel who at the cross gave up his life and so that we could technically be born again. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over us that we would know God and he became the ultimate 
Rachel. And my, my, my heart for you today, if your heart is broken and life is tough, is to dry your tears, Rachel. There is hope. The babe of Bethlehem is coming to correct every injustice and right every wrong and bring a restoration of God's original intention on this earth. Two ways to think about what your true home will be like. The reality of that city. But the relationship. Reality and relationship. The relationship that you can have with God right now through Jesus Christ. If we're living in the in-between time between paradise lost and paradise restored. That's the place we're all ultimately looking to. If if. If God is our dwelling place, according to Psalm 90, and if the presence of God is the only thing that can satisfy the longing of our hearts, and if that longing will not be completely fulfilled until we are permanently in His presence in heaven, what about now? What do we do now in the in-between time? Those verses I read to you a moment ago from Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34, describe a new covenant. God said, it'll be unlike anything I've ever done. And he describes that covenant is is just another synonym for a relationship. He describes a new kind of relationship. A relationship where no longer are we trying to get to God like in the old day under Moses where they had to sacrifice animals and sprinkle bloods. And that, 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 that did not, that, was, that would make you fearful. I mean, that was not beautiful. That, didn't, that system didn't bring about intimacy with God. But God said, I'm going to do something new through Jesus that is going to, it's going to make you look at it and stand in awe and beauty because of what He has done for you. He, Moses was one kind of mediator. Jesus is going to be another kind of mediator. And the reason what Jesus did at the cross for us was so beautiful is because it provided access for us into the presence of God. Let me say this. Home is wherever Jesus is. Home is wherever the presence of God is. That is why suffering Christians around the world today, some of them in underground churches in China, Pastor Saeed in Iranian prison, and other believers in prisons like that around the world, as harsh as their physical realities are, when the presence of God comes into that moment of adversity, they can be home in that prison cell and have the grace to endure that adversity because of the the embrace of God in the middle of that situation. The presence of God is the only way you can remain sane. The presence of God that can only come into your life through a relationship with Jesus. When you pray through Jesus and the presence of God comes. When you worship and the presence of God comes, the presence of God is the kiss of heaven on earth. The presence of God is the only thing of Eden that we will ever know until we get to heaven. The reality of that future city, but a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is the only hope of having some type of sanity while we breathe this Martian air. That's why I love it when I'm alone, and I worship in the presence of... You ever been there? You know, the presence of God is so real to you in those moments, and it's not like that every day. 
and, and you, you want it to be like that every day. It's like that one, those special moments when you're praying or, or when you're worshiping. Sometimes they're in church. Sometimes they're by yourself. And it feels you, to, you don't want to get up and move. You've got to go to work. And you don't want to leave it because you're afraid if you leave it. You know what that is? That's, that's God bringing home to you a little taste of what you're in for for eternity. And, he's bring, and that, that embrace of God, that in presence of God is what will sustain you until the end. Your heart, that, that unexplainable discontent in your heart that has never been satisfied by anything else is because all of humanity is longing to be at home in the presence of its Creator. And some of you in this room today, you, you, you're a Christ follower. But let me just... Picture it like this. I say we're breathing Martian air. The only way astronauts can survive in inhospitable environments like the moon or space where oxygen's not right, they weren't made for that, is they have spacesuits on and they bring oxygen. But can you imagine how long you would survive if he took off his spacesuit? And yet some of you have entered into relationship with Jesus Christ. He has been the breath to your lungs. And for some reason or another, you kind of scooted away. Maybe life happened. You didn't really intend to. Prayer has become distant. The Word of God is something you rarely visit. Church is something you get to when you can. But there was a day in your past when it was real, it was close, it was personal. If you really want to come home for Christmas, you really want this to be Christmas. It's not in the gifts you buy or all the decorations, or attending all the events, Christmas at your house will really be home when the presence of God comes. God fills empty space. And you need to stop long enough in your family, in your life, in the hustle of Christmas, to make room, just like they made room for a baby in an inn, You need to make space for God to come in His presence, in your life, in your family. That's the only way you will ever be home for Christmas. You might get back to the zip code. You might rediscover some nostalgia. But you're going to have that day after feeling because it doesn't live up until you realize home is where the presence of God is. I want you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you've never known Him, I invite you to investigate a relationship with Jesus. I know you came in today on the third part and you didn't want to understand all the context, but I believe enough in the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit that He can be drawing your heart even now because you say, that's my heart's longing for something. It's longing for a relationship the God who created you. And that relationship comes through Jesus. I challenge you today to say, I'm tired of running. Until you recognize this, you'll always be wondering, never arriving. It'll always be winter and never Christmas. You'll always be searching and never finding. You'll always be discontented, never settled. Nothing satisfies in this world. Temporarily, it gets old. And your heart starts aching again.
Can I invite you to come home to a relationship with Jesus? If you're a part of our prayer team for this service, would you come and make yourself available for prayer today? These people come some Sundays and they stand here and there are more people to pray for and they stand in line and other days they stand here and and no one responds, but they just come every week to be available to pray with people who want to give their hearts to Christ. To pray with believers whose spiritual walk has become lukewarm and they want to pray with you today that your spiritual affection for God would be reawakened. For those of you who need a miracle in your life, there's no other season in the year of the church that reminds us that God does miraculous things. When you're talking about a virgin giving birth and the city coming back down from heaven, I mean, if you can wrap your head and heart around that doctrinally, you ought to believe that that God can break in to your physical need, to your financial need. And we're here today to pray with you that the Christ of Advent will break into your life. So let me pray. We want these altars to be altars of the miraculous. Whether you call this church home or you're a guest today, we would be honored to pray with you. In just a moment, I'm going to step into the back. After I pray, I'm going to meet and greet any of the guests that stick around for the reception today that's just kind of come and go. I'd love to greet you there, but this is the most important thing that will happen in this church today. Your response to God. And I challenge you, if God's tugging you to the altar this morning for prayer, come while I speak this blessing before the altars get full of those exiting the building. Father, will you bless these folks? Bless them and keep them. Make your face shine down upon them. Be gracious to them. Turn your countenance their way. Look their direction, Father. Take notice of them, their needs, and give them peace. Let us find what it truly means to be at home this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.